why? Mm. Why does that bother me? When what God was saying is, I cherish you and value you so much, I want to protect you. And we go, ain't nobody need to protect me. <laughs> why do we think that's better? Isn't that mm. interesting? But you're absolutely right. And God designed for women to be treasured. Mm. Why in the world wouldn't we want that? I don't just need to feel better. I need the truth. And ultimately, that will make me better. I just want to make it as totally simple and no-brainer as possible for ladies to see that the Bible is really applicable to their everyday life. When they understand theology, the application flows out of it quickly with joy. It is a journey. But even the journey itself is joyful when I'm doing it, holding the hand of my Savior and trusting Him all along the way. This is the Joyful Journey Podcast, a podcast to inspire and equip women to passionately pursue beautiful biblical truth on their journey as women of God. When you choose truth, you're choosing joy. Welcome back. This is Janet here again with Alexandra. Say hi, Alexandra. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Today, let's talk about how God views us as women. So before we even get started, the culture would tell us, the world tells us that they exalt women. So when you think, Alexandra, about how the culture talks about women and the way God views women, I know, what are some thoughts that come to your head? Oh, Janet, this is, it's such a complicated question because gender roles are constantly changing right now. Yep. And honestly, what culture believes about womanhood is so, so, so far from what God's word says. Yes. So I just feel like that's a really complicated question. And honestly, <laughs> what how I answer today at this recording, by the time it's posted, it could be completely different. So yes. what I'm just going to say is, as I'm thinking about it, I think that the culture's view of biblical womanhood is that basically like women are not cherished by yep. other people. They don't deserve to be cherished. They, they're not cherished by God. Women are to be used. You know, they're yes. a doormat. It's all about men and women are just to help men be amazing. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. exactly. Um, but honestly, I just think the world's view of women is just fickle. And I'm just so mm. thankful that God's word stays the same. I love that word because I think that's, that is so true. When you think about how the world looks at women they're trying, I believe, and so to credit the world, I believe the world is trying to find ways to keep women from being second-class citizens. Yes. And yeah. that's a good thing. Yeah. that Because they're not. So that's a good thing. And for many, if they know anything about biblical roles, they would say it's the Bible that makes them second-class citizens. Yes. But I think in the process of trying to elevate and protect women, they're crushing women. Yes. And I think counterculturally, God's word is really what shows us how to value women the way God does. So I'm excited to jump into that with you today. I think that's so good. I read this article once and it was so interesting. It talked about in the world, the pressure that women are facing now. And this is probably 10 years ago. So fairly recent, but again, fickle, who knows where we are now, but talking about how women now needed to not just be smart. They needed to be hot and brainy because mm. nobody wants the woman CEO who looks dowdy. Mm. She has to show that she's all of it. Mm. And I'm like, put that pressure on a middle school girl. Oh, I yeah. mean, wow. So that's where they are. But I believe that if we're too shallow, it looks like the world says we're equal and the Bible maybe doesn't. Mm. The world says women don't have to be relegated to stay at home. Of course, one of my responses to that is going to be, why is that even relegated? Mm. And who decided that? But I would even say, though, in biblical Christianity subculture, many of us may feel like we have to settle for the less meaningful role. Mm. So I think that means the world's doing a great job. Mm. And we're buying the message, and in their attempt to help, they are hurting women, as you've said. So what's actually true? So let's at least just start, I've just started talking about womanhood more from the very, very beginning. Thinking about even, I just had this conversation with someone this morning as we were having coffee and talking about some areas in her life. And I said, have you ever thought about why did God make two sexes? Mm -hmm. I mean, he didn't have to. 
It's not like God was going, I have no other way that I can think of to reproduce. (laughs) Right. But we act like, well, it just has to be this way. But actually, it doesn't have to be this way. No. God chose that. And then he says, as I'm going to try to do this without my glasses, let's see how this goes. In verse Genesis 1, 26, let us make human beings in our image according to our likeness. And then in verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Somehow being made two sexes shows somehow the beauty of the Godhead in ways one sex would not. I completely agree. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. So there's a reason. And so it matters. It matters. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful thing. It's not one sex is created to help the other sex because the other sex is better. It's mm-hmm. together they show the unity of the Godhead. Somehow that's supposed to happen. So I think at least to start with, men and women are not alike. God could have made it that way. God mm-hmm. could have made one sex and he didn't. So the difference matters. And somehow the difference gives us a better taste of what the Trinity, what the Godhead is like. Mm-hmm. Somehow. Yeah. So at least we know that. And I think also like knowing that both genders represent different aspects of God and of the Trinity. Yeah. I think it is fair to say like we can celebrate the diversity of genders because right now it's pretty looked down upon to celebrate men as feminism yes. rises. But I think, I mean, I'm a mom of four boys. I think men are created wonderfully. And I think we can look at both genders. I mean, right now we're talking about women and God's wonderful view of women, but I think we can look at both genders and celebrate those and that be okay, even if culture tells us it's not okay. And I think God would command us to, yeah, to celebrate both. I totally agree because this was how he said we're made in his image. So somehow this matters. You're absolutely right. And that's part of the fickleness of the world. But I understand historically, and I've just been doing a lot of research on authority. And I do know that in depraved, sinful humanity, whoever has authority tends to use it selfishly. Mm, Yeah. Whoever has authority. So if women had authority and wherever we do have authority, we tend to do that too. Mm -hmm. And historically... Men have had more authority, mm-hmm. and they have used it wrongly. And so the feminist m- movement is a backlash to that, rightly so. Mm-hmm. But the answer to that is not men are bad, women are amazing. The answer is that's what a depraved humanity does with any authority. So you're right. We, we need the issue. The problem is not manhood or womanhood. The problem is sin. Yeah. You know, so yeah. you're right. Because from the beginning, you see in Genesis 1.28, it tells them, that they are to rule over creation together. Adam or Eve were not told to do that. They were told that together. So together, they were to rule over creation. We also see, I love that God chose in his tender wisdom to have Eve not made out of the same thing Adam was made out of, Mm. which is pretty cool. Adam was made out of the dust of the ground. The animals were made out of the dust of the ground. But it wasn't enough for Eve to be made out of the same thing that Adam was. Eve was made out of Adam. Okay, I would love to hear. I have some thoughts on that, but I would love to hear why that's so cool to you. I believe that that makes them closer. That's Mm. more of the one flesh. They Mm. are the same, only complementary. She was taken out of him. She could have been made out of the dust, just like everybody else. And I'm sure that there's more reasons than that. God is a big God. He doesn't just have one reason. He's got 10,000 for why he does it. But I do believe it was purposeful. She was truly part of him. And what does he say about her? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He doesn't say that about the animals. They weren't made from his bone. They weren't made from his flesh. She was even closer. Mm. And he wasn't to rule over her. Mm -hmm. They are made of the same thing, but not even just both made of dust. Mm -hmm. He's made of dust and she's made from him. Mm. And together, that closeness, that sameness was going to be the cure to his loneliness, it says. Mm. So I don't know. Did you have something you wanted to add to that? You know, I love studying through how Eve was created. I think it is so fascinating because if you look at Genesis 2, so after creation... Verse five, it says, now no shrub of the field 
was yet on the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. Okay. So we're still in that desert. Right. Right. That's where God, you know, verses six and seven, we see that God made man. And then in verse eight, God planted a garden. Yep. And then God took man from the wild and put him in the garden. Yep. And then we don't see, I just love this. We don't see until later that chapter that that's where God created woman. Yep. He created her within the safety of the garden. And I just love how God was so intentional. You know, I we can look back and we'll talk more about this throughout the podcast, but we can look back through history and see how women were not know, cherished. No, they weren't. They weren't kept safe. And from the start of woman's existence, she was planted within the safety of the garden. I just think that is so beautiful yeah. because we are considered to be the more vulnerable gender. And God was very tender, even in his creation of women. I love that. And I'm sitting here thinking as someone listening, they're going to say, you're saying she's weaker. And why is she more vulnerable? Women are strong too. You know, I haven't seen a man give birth to a baby, which is so funny. I hear that every time somebody talks about that. I'm like, okay, well, I've saw a man with a kidney stone. I'm telling you, I think it's just as bad, but that's all right. That's an aside. But you're right. And why, if that wells up when people hear you say that, I think that's a great time to stop and go, why? Why does that bother me? When what God was saying is, I cherish you and value you so much, I want to protect you. And we go, ain't nobody need to protect me. Why do we think that's better? Isn't that mm -hmm. interesting? But you're absolutely right. And God designed for women to be treasured. Mm. Why in the world wouldn't we want that? Yeah. But we're in a culture that says, no, that makes me vulnerable. And I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't need a man. Mm -hmm. And now look at that and say, outside of the garden, now that we're in a sin-cursed world, I get that. Mm. I get the desire to not be vulnerable. I get the desire to be as strong as, because vulnerable means hurt mm -hmm. in a world with sin. Yeah. So we need to know the creator who's bigger than all of that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I love that. I love that. And from the beginning, we see that they had an incredible influence over each other. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 is when Adam's told about the knowledge of good and evil and, and the tree and not to eat from it. Here's what we know. Later, Eve is able to quote that to the serpent. So... At some point, Adam told Eve, and that influenced her. Mm. So that's good. We also know that at some point, when Eve became convinced that it would actually be better for them to eat from the tree, she influenced Adam, mm -hmm. and he did it. So they clearly had a lot of influence yeah. on each other. But then we get to Genesis 2.18 to say, okay, there's a lot of things that they're both in the image of God, they work together, made from a rib, not even from the same thing, but from the actual person, the beauty of that, they influence each other, they rule together. What is different about them? Because we already acknowledged they're different. And 2.18 is where we begin to see that. When God says, it's not good for the man to be alone, I will make a helper who is just right for him. Well, there we are. See? God must view Adam more highly because poor Adam's lonely. You know, he needs somebody to have sex with. He needs something. And so let's give him a woman. And she can be the one that helps. So I really think we need to think about that. Mm. If, I'm just going to say this, I don't get to tell God how to be. If God valued men more than women, that would make me really sad. And I'd have to get okay with that because I don't get to tell the creator how he should be. Cool. And we don't get to say, therefore, he's not God. Are you kidding me? It's like, I don't think the Egyptians got to say, I don't like Pharaoh, therefore you're not Pharaoh. Mm. So, but is that even what he said? Because I think what we find out is he's better than mm. anything we could even imagine. But when I say the word helper, how do we use that word? What do you think of when I say helper? Well, I think before I ever studied this topic, yeah. I would have said that it revolves around a man's agenda. Yep. You know, so it's a lower secondary role. It's like having a personal assistant or something. So just not as important as the leader. Yep. And I think about even how we use the word today outside of the Bible. We say, I give my little child an extra little rag and say, you can be mommy's little helper. <laughs> yeah. And it's not helpful. And then I clean the bathroom again when they're done because it was not helpful. <laughs> or if I'm the person working in a lab and I'm the scientist, I have the helper. What does he do? Clean the beakers? <laughs> you know, that's the helper. Yeah. So the helper means less than. That is how we use the word. Mm -hmm. So when we read that, we read that into it. Sure. Is that even what it means, though? I prefer to actually just use the Hebrew word because 
then we don't bring our own meaning to it. Then we get to say, what does it actually mean? And the word is E-Z-E-R, Ezer. It's so funny. I said this to somebody once without spelling it, and they thought I was saying E-A-S-E-R. Mm. One who eases right. someone else. I was like, well, that's interesting. It's kind of like helping, but no. E-Z-E-R. It's many times in Scripture, 21 times in the Old Testament that word is used. 16 of them refer to God. Mm. I don't think anybody wants to call God the lab assistant who cleans the beakers. Right. I don't think anybody wants to say to God, come on, be my little helper today. So clearly that must not be what the word means. Let me just read a couple of the verses. Psalm 33:20 says this. We put our hope in Yahweh. He is our help. He is our easer and our shield. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I love that. And now Psalm 70 verse 5. And again, there are many others, but here's just a couple. David says this, but as for me, I am poor and needy. Please hurry to my aid, O God. You are my helper and my savior. Oh, Yahweh, do not delay. You are my easer and my savior. Do not delay. Mm. You know, it's so interesting because, I mean, I know in the New Testament, it's not Hebrew, but I mean, that's the one of the names of the Holy Spirit is the helper. Yes. Yes. You know? And so he's not inferior. He's a helper because we need help. Right. I mean, think about that. Wow. One who helps someone who needs it. That's what God is doing. Mm -hmm. He helps us because we need help. And just as God is my easer, everybody, all believers, have the privilege of being any part of God's character. But somehow we were designed in a way that we get the privilege of being easers for others where Mm -hmm. they need help. Mm -hmm. Somehow we're designed to especially do that. Does that mean men, manhood, they don't help? Of course not. But there is some unique way. And I think about John Piper saying this at the True Woman 08. He said, true womanhood is a distinctive calling of God to display the glory of his son in ways that would not be displayed if there were no womanhood. Mm, That's beautiful. I love that. I love that. Thinking about we are displaying or showing a part of God's character that wouldn't be as clearly seen. Mm. Not that it wouldn't be there already, and not that men don't have that too. And men have their own unique ways that they're displaying parts of God's character. And they do that in part by protecting others. And quite frankly, so do women. We protect children. Like we, mm-hmm. we all do all of it, none of us perfectly, but in our design, we are highlighting different aspects of the character of God that wouldn't be highlighted, that wouldn't be displayed in the same way. And I love that. And what is ours in part, and I think in large part, it's that we're easers. Yeah. You know, as we're talking about, does being a helper make us inferior, you know, and I love how you're just saying, basically, this is an attribute of God and we get to shine that for all to see. And I love that. And I get to reflect the Holy Spirit's role in the Trinity. I mean, that's like such a privilege, you know, like that's not an inferior thing. You know, the Holy Spirit has a very distinctive role within the Trinity and what a privilege to get to represent part of the Godhead. Yes. You know, and without the Holy Spirit, I mean, when you think about how he helps us, I would not even get to be saved without him opening my eyes to the reality of my sin and the reality of the glorious Christ. And so getting to, in a very small way, reflect that in a marriage and in my relationships with other people. I just think that's such a privilege. I totally agree. And to think, can you imagine in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit being jealous that he didn't get to die for your sins? It's ridiculous. Or Jesus being <laughs> jealous that the Holy Spirit gets to help us? Yeah. It's like they're all unified for one purpose. They're all equal, and they have the privilege of the roles that show mm-hmm. who they are. as a guy. And we get to be part of that, too. And when it's all about the glory of God, we don't fight over who gets which part of his character to display right. the most. Right. Yeah. But I love that because the power... I think sometimes we think the helper equals powerless and the power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. And he never draws attention to himself. Mm. Mm. But what he does is indispensable. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. So from the beginning, 
we see God defining womanhood and giving us this glorious privilege. But what was it actually like in the time of Christ? Because I think something went wrong after sin. After Genesis 3, we have a problem. And this is just an interesting, it's kind of a longer quote, but I'm just going to, I don't want to take it out of context. So I'm just going to read this quote. Tom Holland is an atheist author, not the actor. There is an actor, Tom Holland. He's Spider-Man. That's pretty cool, but that's not who I'm quoting. So Tom Holland, the atheist author, loved Roman Empire timing. He loved to study that. He was fascinated by it. And as he did, he started learning more about what the culture was actually like. And in a different quote of his, he talks about how he is the wonderful fruit of Christianity's exaltation of women. Hmm. Because in the Roman Empire, it was not that way. So let me just read you this quote of something that he said in February 2020. The Jews would have numerous wives. The Romans were monogamous, but they could kind of dump their spouses at regular intervals. Paul says, the Apostle Paul, it has to be monogamous. And so this is an unbeliever. Jews were never told to have numerous wives. I get that, but many of them did. So we're not talking about theologically there, but this is an unbeliever looking at the culture. So a lifelong monogamous relationship, he says. Something very, very odd. There's nothing like this before. But more than that, the reason why this matters is that Paul says that the man who marries a woman is like Christ marrying the church. So that gives an incredible sacral potency to every man and every woman in a married relationship. These Romans are householders who, until they get converted by Paul, are taking for granted that they have the right to sleep with who they like. But Paul's now saying, no, you're the image of Christ. Christ doesn't go around sexually forcing himself on the color he made or page boys, only with your wife. And likewise, it might seem sexist now that the woman gets to be the church and doesn't get to be Christ. But actually, what Paul is doing is giving an incredibly potent, sacral quality to the physical body of a woman. That a woman is not there to be sexually abused. She's not there to be jumped on by a powerful male. And if that's true of an aristocratic woman, it's also true of the lowest, humblest woman in a Roman household. He says this, the scale of this transformation cannot be overemphasized. And it's something that offers to women a dignity that no previous sexual dispensation had offered, and I would say none since, including today. He says, and over the course of the first centuries of Christianity, this understanding of sex eats like a kind of acid through the understanding that the Romans previously had of how sex operates. And over the course of Christian history, the church imposes on believing Christians this sense that being a powerful male does not license you to have multiple wives and concubines. You have to focus on one. He could have said a lot more, but how fascinating that an atheist would say it's Christian principles that have given women dignity. That's absolutely mind-blowing, that quote. It's so good. Yeah. I mean, he's basically saying that without Christianity, women would be treated as trash. Yeah, and they were. Yes. 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 Yeah. I love that because we know that Christianity revolutionized and elevates women in ways that no other culture or religion does. Yes. But it's just interesting that an atheist points that out, that he sees it outside of the context of the Bible. And honestly, I feel like we've come full circle to women not having that dignity, or I feel like our culture is not seeking to protect the dignity of women anymore. In the name of protecting it. Exactly. Which is fascinating. If you even think of like athletic competitions, women are not getting to compete fairly anymore. Right. Right. Because we value other things more than we value women. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So in the name of sexual freedom, yeah, we are hurting women. We are. Yeah. yeah. And I know that the Bible is very much looked down upon in our culture. Yeah. Especially by those who are very for the sexual revolution, but the Bible is actually what treasures and elevates women above I'm going to say culture's abuse of women. Absolutely. Absolutely. A couple of other quotes that I just think are interesting. John MacArthur has a book called 12 Extraordinary Women. The title just cracks me up. It's really a good book, but he wrote a book called 12 Ordinary Men. But I think in our culture, he couldn't call it ordinary women. They had to be extraordinary women. I just, I thought that's cute. Okay, but thank you. We all know none of us are extraordinary, but 12 Extraordinary Women. And he says, one of the unique features of the Bible is the way it exalts women. So maybe that's why he called it that. In God's eyes, we are extraordinary because of him. At Sinai... 
God commanded children to honor both father and mother. That was a revolutionary concept in an era when most pagan cultures were dominated by men who ruled their household with an iron fist, while women were usually regarded as lesser creatures, mere servants to men. So we look at that and go, well, it should be this way. And we're right. It should be that way. But it wasn't until biblical Christianity, Mm. biblical truth. This is even before Christianity, but biblical thinking. Yeah. He says this, in Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman. I just have to stop and say, if wisdom were personified as a man, women would be up in arms. Why do you make that a man? You know, it's just crazy where we are today. But again, we're trying to react to having been less than. Mm-hmm. And so then we overreact. Yeah. But it's not. Wisdom is personified as a woman. And the New Testament church is likewise represented as a woman, the bride of Christ. So the Bible and Bible times, wherever the Bible went, women were elevated, not above men, but as image bearers who should be treasured. You know, if you look at the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew, it has women in it, which was so, so countercultural. Yes. And I don't think people realize. I hear from women who are not believers. They say, oh, yeah, you know, they talk about how the Bible was so oppressive towards women. And I'm like, no, if you studied the history of culture yes. and you saw how different the Bible commands and records the treatment of women, you cannot walk away from the Bible and say that women were oppressed. Right. And enter Tom Holland. Yeah. Exactly. Who is, as an unbeliever, willing to honestly look at what happened and say, I'm not a believer. He doesn't believe in any God, but he does see the impact. And I appreciate that level of honesty that he had. Yeah. So where are we now? If the Bible shows us that God's view of women is an amazing, privileged image bearer, and we see in Bible times that wherever biblical Christianity went, women were elevated to that role of an image bearer because their culture had not put them there. What's the problem today? Especially when we're in a culture that says we're elevating women, which is very different. In Bible times, they didn't even claim that. Women were second-class citizens. So we've reacted against that, I would say rightly. And now our culture says, no, 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 no. We are going to elevate women. Okay, that should be great. That should be exactly what the Bible did. So we should all be on the same page. So then what's the problem? Mm. Here's what's just fascinating to me. I don't really know any better way to say this. It seems to me that our culture has said, here's how we're going to elevate women. We're going to show they can do whatever a man can, Mm. which is really elevating who? Yeah. Men. Yeah, exactly. And then saying, you're as good as that. Why do I have to compare myself to a man to have worth? Yeah. I don't understand that. Why is it more important to make money than to manage a home. I'm not saying who should do what, but why is one more important than the other? Why do we say you need skills to manage a company, but there are no skills needed to manage a home? Do we not understand they're basically the same thing? Hmm. It's just a company of little ones who really don't even want to be managed. Right. So it's kind of hard. Why, if I do the very same tasks, is it valued if I do it for someone outside my home than if I do it for someone in my home? Hmm. Who said that? Is that God saying you're only valuable if you, or is that the culture that says they're valuing me, that values me only if? And I get that. You know, I get that the world is confused and in our effort to say that we are valuable, we say, look, I can do what a man can do. What's sad to me is when, as believers, we're buying it, Mm. when God offers us something so much better. And I will say, when I got married, I got married at 28, and at some point when we had children, I came home, and I remember thinking I would not need as many skills at home. I was giving up using my gifts and abilities to -hmm. stay home and raise my children. Mm -hmm. I actually believed that until I stayed home to raise my children and realized it actually required abilities I didn't have yet, Mm -hmm. and I needed to learn. But I didn't even know I thought that until I was staying home, because that's what had just sunk into my head from everybody around me. You know, I remember when my first son was a baby. So I was a first time mom. I was still in school at the time and I was being a stay at home mom, you know? Yep. And then when people would ask me like, Oh, hi, I'm Alexandra. Okay. Well, what do you do? I would say, Oh, I'm a student. And I also stay at home. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and I stay home with my children. And I remember one time you asked me, why do you do that? Why do you say first that you're a student? And I think 
question why is one of the hardest questions ever to answer because it's so revealing. And I just, it was such pride, yeah. you know, that I was just was like, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm not capable. Un- yeah. I'm not unemployed. I'm doing this and I'm, you know, I am worthy and I'm, you know. Yep. That's so funny. I don't even remember telling you that or asking <laughs> you that, but I'm sure it's because that's exactly what I did when I stayed home. I used to be an HR director. So when people would say, what do you do? I would tell them, I used to be an HR director. And and it's almost like, I want you to see what a martyr I am. I could be doing so much and I've chosen to stay home with my children. Isn't my martyrdom amazing? (laughs) Until I realized what I was doing. And that's funny that apparently I asked you the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) That was helpful. And to think, so first of all, there's pride in wanting to make sure I look good to the world. I get that. But it was farther along in my growth to realize it was also just not true because I was actually feeding and believing meaningful work is what's done in the marketplace and anything else is less important. So I am willing to be less important. Well, that's fine. In humility, be willing to be less important. But it's also just not true. I was buying what the world was selling and not even knowing it. I didn't have to learn to be content with a subservient role, though God has the right to ask it of me, but he didn't. I have to stop believing that my role is subservient. And who's telling me that? Not God, but the culture that supposedly is exalting me. So a subtle message that being a man is better is I can be one. Mm. Most in our culture, and I get there's confusion over sexual identity, but as far as value, most men in our culture are not saying, look, I can do anything a woman can do. They might be saying they are confused and they think they are one. I understand there's a lot of pain around that. I'm not even thinking about that. But in general, men are not saying, look how valuable I am. I can do what a woman does. Mm -hmm. Why is it that we say, look how valuable I am. I can do whatever a man does. Mm -hmm. We're all inherently saying what men do is more valuable. Mm -hmm. God didn't say that. Yeah. Why would I do that? And it's not, should a woman work? Think about the question. Is she only working if she gets a paycheck? Mm -hmm. All of us are working. Some of us are lazy. Some of us are working hard. Some of us get a paycheck for it. Some of us don't. But we're all working. Here's what I think the world says. Women are just as valuable in the workplace and as long as they don't get emotional, Mm. as long as they don't talk too much, as long as they behave as our culture thinks men should behave, Mm. as long as she's not nurturing, you know, the way God made her, as long as she isn't uniquely displaying the glory of God as she was designed. Mm. Wow. So it makes me sad. Instead, we're told, here's what you can be, the model woman. You can have a high position in a company, wonderful childcare for your kids. You can handle negotiating a very high pressure contract and then leave at lunch to meet your child for a field trip and, you know, bring them their lunch and, and then come home, put dinner together or order it. Enjoy your family time, get the kids to bed, and relax with your executive husband. You are the epitome of contentment, satisfaction, and fulfillment. So, Alexandra, have you met any of these women? No, I have not met anyone who can do this and not feel frazzled. I mean, I don't know, right? Because I've never lived that way. But I imagine it probably would feel very chaotic to try to uphold all those spinning plates. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of a quote by Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth. So I'm going to read that real fast. It says, it should come as no huge surprise that the secular world is confused and off base about the identity and calling of women. But what I find distressing is the extent to which this has taken hold even within the evangelical world. We see the fruit of that revolution as prominent Christian speakers, authors, and leaders promote an agenda, whether subtly or overtly, that encourages women to define and discover their worth in the workplace, Mm. in society, or at church, while minimizing or even at the expense of their distinctive roles in the home as daughters, sisters, wives, and mothers. As bearers and nurturers of life, caregivers, as those privileged and responsible to shape the heart and character of the next generation. Wow, as if that doesn't matter. Right. The feminist revolution was supposed to bring women greater fulfillment and freedom. It was supposed to make us feel better about ourselves. After all, you've come a long way, baby. (laughs) But we see the poison fruit of the revolution in the eyes and the pitiable cries of women who are drowning in the quagmire of serial divorce and remarriage and wayward children. Women who are utterly exhausted from the demands of trying to juggle one or more jobs, 
function as single parents and be active in church, women who are disoriented and confused, who lack sense of mission, vision, and purpose for their lives, and who are perpetually, pathetically shrouded in woundedness, self-doubt, resentment, and guilt. Wow. I mean, as you read that, if you understand that, if you believe that, and I agree with her, if you believe that, there's nothing appealing about that. Mm-hmm. Why are we fighting so hard to get that? It takes a lot of the power out of the lie when we get to expose it. Yeah. The world says if you want to be satisfied and fulfilled, you must have it all. Women shouldn't have to choose between staying home and raising their children and having a full-time career. You shouldn't have to make choices. I mean, okay, Alexandra, you're a mother. Can you imagine telling your children, you don't need to make choices? Mm. No. You don't have to choose. You can eat whatever you want all day long and not have a stomachache. You can refuse all of your naps and handle life really well. (laughs) We have to make choices. You can't eat and not eat at the same moment. You have to choose what you're going to do. It's fascinating to me that in no other area of life do we ever tell people or live you don't have to choose. And can you, so I don't want people listening to this saying, well, gosh, I'm listening to this podcast and they're telling me I need to quit my job. Yeah. So what is the distinction? Like, what is the point we're trying to make here? I just want to make sure people are very clear on what we're saying. We're not saying if you work outside the home, you're not honoring God. Right. Excellent point. Because no, the scriptures don't say whether you work outside the home or not is how you determine if you're honoring God. It's, is my goal lining up with God's goal for me? Right, the, which heart, is, the heart issue yes, behind all this. How can I be an easer? Mm-hmm. Is my work encouraging my ability to be an easer, or is it discouraging it? Mm, that's a great question. And that can be answered very differently. Is it helping others around me or adding more chaos mm-hmm. to others around me? And here's what I want for women to have. The freedom to revel in how they're designed, and they don't have to clamor. They don't have to clamor over, I wish I was married and had kids. They don't have to clamor over, I want to have a career, I have to be fulfilled. They get to say, I'm already representing Mm. part of the Godhead. Now, what's the best venue? I love that. And that may be at work. That may be at home. It may be a mixture. I have done all of those things. I have worked, not married. I have worked, married. I have consulted and done some part-time stuff when my kids were younger, and now I do things. I just don't get paid for it. I do a lot of things outside the home now. So each time I have to stop and say, why am I doing it? Mm. Am I doing it because I want to glorify God and use the design he's given me to be a blessing to others, or am I doing it at the expense of others because I need it? Mm. And then I would say, oh, there's something so much better. You don't need it. And I I need it to be valuable. Yes, God already values you because that's how he designed you. You don't need that Mm. to be valued. Which leads us to, okay, what does God say? Well, Galatians 3.28 says that we are all equal in God's sight. And I love that because the world says we're all equal. I want to say God says it and means it. Mm. We're equal in essence. We're not equal because we can do all the same things. We're equal regardless. We're equal if we're disabled and can't do what either sex can do. We're equal because we're image bearers. I love that. We're equal in our differences. And we're equal not just because we can contribute just as much as a man. Mm. We're equal in essence and we're equal in our difference, which I believe is far more freeing than you're equal and you prove it by doing. Yeah, absolutely. We're just equal. We do see that we are co-regents. Over all of creation, we're supposed to display the glory of God to the rest of the world. We were told that in the beginning. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says all believers have the awesome job of being ambassadors for Christ. But again, I'm not an ambassador for me. I'm an ambassador for Christ. And so is every man around me who loves Jesus, supposed to be an ambassador for Christ. So we're equal, and we're all ambassadors for Christ and not ourselves. That's true. Well, what's different? Because we've said we're equal and there are differences. And I'm not to try to minimize those. I'm to revel in them. So if I'm going to really understand my unique design, the first thing I have to do is come back to what I had said before. We're equal, but my goal is the glory of God, not the glory of Janet. And I love how Susan Hunt says this in her book, By Design. To capture culture for King Jesus, we must first be captivated by Jesus. We must have a consuming passion for the glory of the triune God. 
So the core question is not, what's my role? That is not the most important thing to ask. The core question is, what is my goal? I love that. What is my chief end? If my life purpose is God's glory, then I will value and affirm male and female differences because I know those differences were designed by God to bring completeness to the relationships he gives me and to the ministries he equipped me to perform. Mic drop. I love that. Yeah, isn't that great? I love that quote. I love that book. And we'll have that listed in our show notes as a book. It was very helpful to me. We can love the differences in part because I'm not after who got the better role. It's after together we show the glory of God. That's it. But I'm going to say for most of us, that's not our goal. My goal is to prove something about me. And Susan Hunt then says this, which I loved. This is about the first sin. Adam taking the apple from Eve disobediently. And she says this, he was not deceived, he was influenced. His helper, the one who was supposed to come alongside him where he's weak and help him, became his hinderer. Is it not possible, and this is her conjecture, but I think it's an interesting thought, that Satan went to Eve because he knew the power of her influence. Is it not also possible that the lie of relativism has been dangled before women today? Because the enemy knows that if women bite, the rest will be easy Mm. because we'll use our influence. Mm, Wow. Feminism has been a tool to distort truth. It's enticed women with the same bait that hooked Eve, self-promotion rather than God's glory. Mm. You know, that really makes me think about being a wife and you have so much influence over your husband. Yes. And it makes me so sad when I hear women talk about just how the husbands are the theologians because they're the spiritual leaders of the family. Mm. And they just, and I don't want to downplay devotionals because I think they can help in addition to Bible reading. They can help, you know. Sure. But when women only read devotionals because Because their husband is the theologian. Exactly. And it's like, no, you have so much influence in your marriage. And if you are not grounding yourself in the word of God daily, like it has an impact on your family. Women have to be really, really soaking their minds in truth. If I'm going to be an easer, I have to know what I'm talking about. Exactly. Yes. And my husband needs that. Think about when my husband comes home, not that this has ever happened in my home because, you know, (laughs) I basically married Jesus, right? But he might come home and complain. Here's my moment. Do I complain with him? How do I use my influence? Or do I love him and say, what do you think God's up to in that, honey? How do you think you might? But I've got to be grounded in the word, grounded in my purpose. I want to give glory to God. Yes, I have a huge influence Mm -hmm. as a wife and not just as a wife. People don't like to hear this these days, but the reality is statistically, women use many more words than men. Mm -hmm. That's not a bad thing. How am I using? I have incredible influence over not just my husband, but all the people around me. Mm. How am I using that influence? When I walk out of the room, do they understand the purpose of God better? Wow, there's power in that. But I got to know, I have to be grounded in the word if I'm going to use my influence in the right way. Absolutely right. So if somebody were to say to you at this point, Alexandra, compare God's view of women to the world's view, now what would you say? So based upon what we talked about today, I think the world's view of women is completely based upon performance. Yes. So if we do certain things, we're accepted, you know? Yep. And... I think that God's view of us is, if you're a believer, God's view of women is based upon Christ's performance. Yes. And that's so freeing. So even if I'm living out my womanhood imperfectly, you know, failing. Right, right. Which I do every day. God's affections towards me is not at all based upon how I'm living that out. It's based upon Christ's work yes. on the cross. And so that makes me free to just look at how I'm different. You know, I'm, if I look at the differences between me and my husband, I am more emotional. You know, yeah. I am, you know, there are a lot, tons of differences. I'm different in good ways. Not that being emotional is bad. Right. Some days it is, <laughs> but you know, I'm more relational, you know? Yep. And so I'm able to just look at those differences between me and my husband and and just be thankful for how yes. God created me. I can be free that it's not based upon my performance. Yes. And I do think the world does want to squeeze us into a mold. And I love what you're saying is the world wants us to try to be like men. Yes. And God wants us to look flourish. At, yeah, flourish in how he created us as women. Yes. Yeah, so, okay, practically what might that look like? Again, in Susan Hunt's book, I want to read another quote just because it was like, yes. Here's what we have a tendency to do as women. 
because many of us in our design by God, we might notice things or understand things about other women that a man does not. Mm. That should so not true. be a shock in any way. And that's, but we take that as a character flaw of a man. And it just means he's a man. It's okay. So what would it look like to be an easer to the male leaders around me who want to better minister to women? Mm-hmm. Well, Susan Hunt says this. Finally, I got the message. My husband is the kindest, most compassionate man I know. If he does not connect with female emotions without me telling him, how could I think that other men would make the connection? It's difficult for men to understand the emotions of these women, but other women can be the interpreters of those feelings. When I admitted this, my emotions became productive. I realized that women, including myself, must be the advocates to church leaders for emotionally and physically bruised women. Wow. She gave this example that I loved, and I think it was from her book. If there is a woman who has been abused by her husband, the men in the church want to help, and mm-hmm. the deacons want to know that because mm-hmm. they want to deal with it and they want mm-hmm. to protect her. Yeah. And all of that is good and right. And so in her example, the men were thinking, we need to know what's happening so that we can do something about it. We can't just vaguely go, hey, she doesn't feel like things are going well at home. We need to know what's happening so we can deal with it. All of that is good and right. So they asked her to come to their next leadership meeting and answer their questions. Mm. Do you know how terrifying that is for a woman to walk into a group of men when the man who has authority over in her home has abused it like that? Mm -hmm. Were they being mean? We could go, that is so insensitive. I cannot believe. Well, no, they were thinking... We need the facts. We need to know what's happening so we can deal with it. So I can be mad about that or I can come alongside and say, hey, could I come with her? And could it just be two or three of you that could go back and tell the rest of the group, here's what I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. to which they'd probably go, oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's where I get to help. Men who are wanting to be protectors, who are wanting to do what God called them to do, but they're not thinking like a woman. Mm -hmm. Well, they're not supposed to. I can help instead of judge I can realize that help is an incredibly full word. Exodus 18.4, it says God defended Israel, and they use the word he was their helper in that way. So how do I defend people against God's enemies? I should be a prayer warrior. I should be standing in the gap for those who are being enticed. I should be standing for truth and not giving up on people. And I think about the example of Esther, Mm. who was used by God to deliver her people at the risk of her own life. And she did that as an easer. Wow. That's part of helping is defending. Part of helping is being a supporter. Psalm 20, verse 2. Others were praying for David to find support in the sanctuary of God. And they use that word easer. I should be a supporter. Do the people around me know that I will protect their reputation? I'm not going to be criticizing them to other people. I'm their supporter. I'm Mm -hmm. their cheerleader. I'm on their team. I want them to do right. Do they know that even when they fail, I'm going to be there? I'm going to believe the best. I'm going to cover a transgression. I'm going to be there. I am for them. Do they know that? That's what a helper would be. Psalm 33, 20, God is our shield and protects us as our easer. I love the fact that when Solomon is faced in 1 Kings 3 with two women who are claiming that this child is their own. Oh, yeah. How did he figure out whose it was? Mm. The one that was willing to protect the child. Yeah. That's what an easer does. And he used the knowledge that a mother's heart will cause her to protect her child, Mm. regardless of what sacrifices she had. And he was like, oh, I know who that is. Mm. I know who that is. So protectors, working hard at helping, helpers in word and deed, we will work hard at that. We will be helping by giving people true hope. I was just meeting with someone recently, and whatever difficulty they're in, how quickly are we as theologians seeing God is doing something? Mm. So if I'm a biblical helper, I'm not trying to get them out of hard things all the time. I'm looking at them saying, what's God up to? What do you think God is up to here? How am I helping others think vertically? There is nothing easy about that. There is power in that, and it takes biblical strength to look at someone who's suffering and help them go vertical and find hope. That's part of what I get to do. It's not about what activities. Who takes out the trash? Who works? Who cuts the grass? I don't care. It's about how whatever activity I'm engaged in, I'm using my God-given design as an easer Mm. and bringing that to the table. And then when I think about it, I don't know, it's probably my pride. I hate to be a marketer's dream. 
I hate to be deceived. Mm. I hate to think that I'm making Satan smile because he caught me. Mm -hmm. And so I think I want to be so aware of the lie that it's not attractive. I don't need to prove to anyone God designed me this way for a good reason. I don't want to waste any of the opportunities that I've been given to be the easer by clamoring after something else. Romans eleven thirty three, just a way to end this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And they're so much better. Amen. Some resources that I would recommend. We will link an article that I read years ago, Liberated But Bound on what the women's movement is doing to us. I will link that Tom Holland interview as well. Susan Hunt's book by design, a newer book that I just read in the last couple of years by Rebecca Merkel, Eve in Exile. Excellent book. And I just finished probably three weeks ago, Kevin DeYoung's book, Men and Women in the Church. Excellent book. So just some resources that I would commend to you. But for today, thanks for joining us. I am thankful for the privilege that I get to use my design to try to powerfully help others see the connection between truth, which is who we are as treasured image bearers, and joy, living confidently out of that design. To keep from missing any future episodes, please sign up for our newsletter on our webpage, joyfuljourneypod.com. From there, you can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, or Spotify. You can also visit us on our Facebook page or Instagram at Joyful Journey Podcast. If you have any questions or comments for us, you can also email us at joyfuljourneyquestions at outlook.com. Joyful Journey Podcast is a ministry of Faith Bible Seminary. All proceeds go to offset costs of this podcast and toward scholarships for women to receive their MABC through Faith Bible Seminary.